Well, good morning to each of you, and thanks for being here today as we begin a new study in the Old Testament book of Exodus, which hopefully will be a study that will be very beneficial to all of you in your Christian walk here on earth. I would imagine that most of you are somewhat familiar with the 40 chapters, yet because we're starting a new book, I'd like to give you a few introductory comments as an overview to help you understand Exodus and where we're going over the next several months. So on the screen you'll see historical setting. The opening verses of Exodus connect this book directly to Genesis, which if you remember ended with the death of Joseph around 1805 B.C. In fact, commentators say that in the early manuscripts, the first word of chapter 1 was and implying this continuance on from Genesis. Now while the approximate dates of the events of this book are speculative, many hold to a model that ranges from 1267 to 1290 BC. Still others speculate a time frame of 1447 to 1446 BC. This difference in dates is really critical because throughout the years some scholars have even doubted the validity of Exodus. Did it even take place? Is it true? And so, as we were preparing, Phil found a video that we hope to show on a Sunday evening coming up later on this month that will hopefully clear up that dilemma. But needless to say, there's definitely a possibility, a time frame between when Genesis ends and Exodus begins of about 400 years. Authorship. Traditionally, Moses is viewed as the main author of Exodus. In fact, Moses is the author of the first five books of the Bible. Some call that the Pentateuch or the first five books of Moses. Thirdly, theme and outline. The word Exodus actually means going out or departure. And as such, the book provides a historical account of God's deliverance of his people from Egypt's cruel slavery. Just to kind of set the stage, let me tell you what we're going to talk about in these chapters. Chapters 1 and 2 is the setting. 3 through 6 is Moses' leadership. 7 through 15, miraculous signs and judgment. 16 through 18, Israel's journey of deliverance. Chapters 19 through 23, events at Mount Sinai. Chapter 24, the confirmation of the covenant. Then there's kind of a skip chapters 25 to 31 and 35 through 40, instructions for building the tabernacle. And then we'll conclude, or part of the inside will be 32 to 34, which is the breach and renewal of the covenant. One other, I've told several of you, but one other item worth mentioning is we discussed the preaching of this as elders, and it's our intention to go through this study at a faster than normal pace by covering at least one chapter a week, maybe several a week. So depending on the content of the scripture, um, that could change. So we may have to size it down some, but that's our intent. So you may be asking, why Exodus? I could say, well, it's certainly an easier book to find than Philemon, right? (laughs) But no... 
There are three thoughts or reasons. First, to understand God better. In this book, we will surely see our living God at work in the lives of his people. Secondly, to understand God's redemption better. Exodus is definitely a picture of the gospel. And in this book, we will surely see Christ, our great redeemer. And reason number three, to understand how to live out our faith better. We will see example after example of personal situations. Some which we should avoid and some for which we should follow. So as we embark today into chapter one, I want to ask all of you children a question. Do you like it when someone reads you a story? Unlike my wife, who is an excellent storyteller, I would say I don't consider myself a natural when it came to reading to one of my children or now reading to one of my grandchildren. But recently, on a family vacation, I said to one of my three-year-old granddaughters, Grandpa's going to tell you an exciting story, which I was just going to make up. And I began, once upon a time, to which she interrupted me immediately and said, Grandpa, I'm going to tell you a story. <laughs> and for the, about the next three minutes, she told me this really good story that she just made up. I was amazed because I told her mom afterward, she's quite the storyteller. To which she replied, oh yes, she loves stories. And isn't that true for all of us? We all love good stories, especially stories that are true. And that's where we find ourselves today in Exodus. Not only is it a true story, but it's a life-changing story of deliverance. And it is that same truth of deliverance that resonates in the glorious story of the gospel. For if you picture it, Mankind in the Garden of Eden started out delightful. Then the story turns to despair. Then the story goes on to desperation. But then, then comes deliverance. As God intervenes to rescue the perishing, which for all believers is life-changing. So with that long introduction... Let's begin this Exodus story, to which I titled this first message, Getting Ready for God's Deliverance. So let's dedicate this time to the Lord. Father, thank you for this Exodus chapter 1 as we've embarked today, and I pray that you would really help me to share in a way that people understand, to share the truth of the scriptures. And I pray that there be a, um, an openness not only for the believers, but for the non-believers here this morning, that they would see Christ and see Christ as he delivers his people. So just bless our time, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So I broke this up into three sections, the first one being verses 1 through 10. So follow along as I read. Now these are the names of the children of Israel which came into Egypt. Every man in his household came with Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Jebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. 
And all the souls that came out of the loins of Jacob were 70 souls. For Joseph was in Egypt already. And Joseph died and all his brethren and all that generation. And the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly and multiplied and waxed exceedingly mighty. And the land was filled with them. Now there arose up a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. And he said unto his people, Behold, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come on, let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply. And it come to pass that when there falleth out any war, they join also unto our enemies and fight against us. And so get them up out of the land. I called section one, the need for deliverance. A little history. Within these first few verses, Moses gives us a transition from the days of Genesis to the time of Exodus. The phrase, now, and, these are the names of the children of Israel which came into Egypt. Every man in his household came with Jacob. This is a direct confirmation of Genesis 46, 3 and 4. Where it says, And he said, I am God, the God of thy father. Fear not to go down into Egypt, for I will make there make of thee a great nation. I will go down with thee into Egypt, and I will surely bring thee up again. And then Genesis 46, 8. And these are the names of the children of Israel which came into Egypt, Jacob and his sons. And then Genesis goes on to parallel directly what Exodus says. Reuben and his sons, Simeon and his sons, Levi and his sons, Judah and his sons, Issachar and his sons, Zebulun and his sons, Benjamin and his sons, Dan and his sons, Naphtali and his sons, Gad and his sons, and Asher and his sons. Then from verse 5, back in Exodus, it says, And all the souls that came out of the loins of Jacob were 70. For Joseph was in Egypt already. Which again confirms, or is confirmed from Genesis 46, 27, that says, And the sons of Joseph, which were born him in Egypt, were two souls. All the souls of the house of Jacob, which came into Egypt, were three score and ten, or the equivalent of seventy. Look at verses six and seven. And Joseph died, and all his brethren, and all that generation, and the children of Israel were fruitful, and increased abundantly, and multiplied, and waxed exceedingly mighty, or became very numerous, and the land was filled with them. This verse 7 emphasizes what some would call a population explosion. For such extraordinary growth was all part of God's blessing to his people. And you can see how many people? Exodus 12:37 impl <clears throat> implies 600,000 men alone. So when you add an estimate of the women and children, you could easily be at 2 million we can certainly say at this point of the story, things are going okay, right? But, but the story now takes a twist towards despair. Look at verse 8. Now, there's the transition word. Now, there arose up a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. Most commentators indicate that when the scripture says here, which knew not Joseph, it implies that the new king now had contempt 
for Joseph's previous status from the previous Pharaoh and the divine blessings that accrued to the people of Israel as a result of this association. Instead of remembering Joseph's wisdom and how he saved all of Egypt from the great famine, the new king saw a huge number of people as a threat and indicated so in verse 9 and 10 by saying, Behold, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come on, let us deal wisely or let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply and it comes to pass that when there falleth out any war, they join also unto our enemies and fight against us. And so get them up out of our land. In other words, Pharaoh, he loved the power over all the people. But this mass could quickly turn on him. Could revolt against him. And so he was frightened. So, as we will see in this next session, the new king's plan was to enslave the Israelites and exercise a tightened control over them, including a plan of intimidation, demoralization, and even more frightening, a plan of affliction. Thus, in this story, there now becomes a need for deliverance. Now, I'm sure all of you, at one time or another, have felt this need for deliverance in your lives. It reminded me of a certain owner of a large company here in Wichita that I had the opportunity to indirectly work for for a number of years. This man had quite <clears throat> a harsh reputation in the business community, and it so happened I was looking for a new job and a headhunter or a personnel agency called about a position that seemed to fit my skills. Yet during the interview, it was pointed out that this company I was to work for was owned by the man who had this bad reputation. Several of my friends in the past had worked for this man and had quit and had not anything good to say. And although I wouldn't be working for this owner directly, I knew that and I immediately said, no thanks. But they were persistent and wanted me to talk to who I would be working for. And from him I was assured that I was down the chain of command and I would have no interaction with this owner. So I took the job. But not more than a few weeks into this new position we had a stockholder meeting where all the companies came together and this owner made a spectacle of me in front of the entire board of some 40 people. Probably because I was a new kid on the block, yet his comments to intimidate me made me feel absolutely humiliated. In fact, I came home and told Barb I was quitting. For in my heart of hearts, there was this need for deliverance. I had to separate myself from this man. Now, I won't belabor how the story eventually turned out, but God certainly took control as I cried out to him. The need for deliverance. Before moving on, I just want you to consider this need, but think through it from a spiritual point of view. Have you ever wondered why people just don't flock to Christ by the droves to be saved? As we talked about Psalms 32 in our Wednesday evening cottage prayer, Christ offers complete forgiveness of sins and eternal life is a free gift to all who will believe. What, what could be better? 
Yet, why aren't people lined up at the door of churches all over the world asking, what must I do to be saved? Or when you share the gospel with someone who is lost, why is the response not, yes, yes, I want Jesus? Why is that not the response? And the answer is that the God of this world, the enemy calls Satan, has blinded the eyes, blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they just don't comprehend the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ. There is seemingly no fear, no fear of judgment, no fear of eternal life in hell. A co-worker of mine recently shared a story with me about a man in his church whose uncle was sick with cancer, went under hospice care, and was now in the hospital with only a few hours left before he would die. Throughout the years, the gospel had been shared with this man numerous times, all being rejected. And so on his deathbed, this relative pleaded with his uncle to give his heart to Christ for his eternity was just around the corner. Now when I heard my co-worker telling me this story, I had fast-forwarded to thinking, surely this man will give his life to Christ. Surely he would say, yeah, yes, I want Jesus. But no. No. This man's response was complete rejection. For he said, I want nothing to do with Jesus. And shortly after he died. And my coworker told me this relative wept as he was by the bedside. So I would ask you who have never made a profession of faith, do you see your need for deliverance? If you were laying in that hospital bed and had never given your heart to the Lord, would you say yes? I mean, I would hope you would. I hope that would be your answer, but why wait? Why wait till you face that moment in time? It, it's very possible you're going to leave today and you're going to have a car wreck and die. Why not cry out for deliverance today? Well, let's move on. Next section, verses 11 through 14. Therefore they did set over them taskmasters to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for fair treasure of cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were grieved because of the children of Israel. And the Egyptians made the children of Israel to serve with rigor. And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage, in mortar and in brick, and in all manner of service in the field. All their service, wherein they made them serve, was with vigor. I call this next section the desperation for deliverance. As we saw in here in the first ten verses, because of the fear of exponential growth, Pharaoh begins to employ a series of actions against the Hebrew nation in order to suppress them. Verse 11, we see Pharaoh set over them taskmasters to afflict them with their burdens. This is the essential idea of forced labor or slave labor. Commentators note that this not only put them under the control of Pharaoh's taskmasters through hard physical work, but that such labor was directed solely at constructing projects like building Pharaoh the treasured cities of Pithom and Ramses. And in doing so, by constructing these cities, 
it would limit the Hebrew holdings while increasing Pharaoh's own. It's interesting as you look. However, this form of slavery did little to diminish the fruitful increase. For it says in verse 12 that the more they worked, the more they multiplied and grew. This only made Pharaoh and the taskmasters more upset and frustrated. Which now leads Pharaoh to step 2 from verse 13. Pharaoh made the children of Israel to serve with rigor or harshness or cruelty. Not only did the Egyptians make working slaves of the Israelites, but now they mistreated them. From verse 14, they made their lives bitter with hard bondage and mortar and in brick and in all manner of service in the fields. Bitter is an interesting word. Commentators describe it, but I like this commentator the best. The Egyptians affected the daily lives of the Israelites as described by the Hebrew word mar, translated bitter, a term that will later become important at the introduction of Passover in Exodus 12. Their bitterness includes major, two major areas. First, they work with mortar and brick, the hot, strenuous, monotonous work of making bricks and using them in construction would serve as a form of labor for Hebrews in urban, area, urban areas. Second, they were forced into all kinds of work in the field. Their efforts included planting and harvesting of food for the Egyptians. However, the final sentence in the verse, verse 13, refers to working the people with rigor and ruthlessly. Though the Hebrews had already worked as servants for the Egyptians, their current situation was much different. They had now moved from servants to oppressed slaves, given no mercy and no rights. End of quote. As I thought about this situation, and if I had to describe this environment of cruelty, my simple word would be mean. The taskmasters were ruthlessly mean. I've heard it said of certain people, and I've even known a few people over the years, that they had this mean streak in them. I thought, I thought about each of you. We were praying as elders this week, for all of you by name, and I thought, I feel like I know most of you pretty well. And I have never seen a mean streak, but I'm not living in your homes. I'm not with you 24-7. Hopefully, if I were to ask children, your parents, do one of your children have a mean streak? Or children, if I'd ask about your parents, do one of your parents have a mean streak? Or siblings? Are you mean to one of your sisters or brothers? I trust that's not true. For such sin plays havoc in your personal testimony to others. But back to our story of working ruthlessly. Let me ask you, how many of you like to work hard and sweat? Raise your hand. Do you like to work hard and sweat? Not as many as I might think. Hopefully most of you men would say yes as you consider working on projects around your home or in your garden. Why do you answer yes? Because it's rewarding. It's fulfilling when the project is done. Let's just say though that you're working for me as a taskmaster and I'm building a, a nice home with a beautiful garden and right over here 
I'm going to build a stone wall all right over here. I can picture it. Remember, I'm a mean taskmaster. And I want you to serve with rigor. So, instead of carrying this block from here to there, I want you to carry it all the way around the sanctuary. Now, most of you men could probably do it once, twice, but in the next hour, I want you to do it a hundred times. Would that be rewarding to you? Fulfilling? No. As the scripture says here, it would make your life bitter. Such that now there becomes a desperation for deliverance. Not only a desperation for deliverance in the physical realm, but again, let's take it one step further. and Consider this desperation from a spiritual perspective. As you think about your own conversion to Christ. Remember when you were first convicted of your sin and your separation from God? When your eyes were open to the truth and you realized your own wickedness, your own deceit in your heart before a holy God? You realized you were doomed for destruction and eternity in hell? And there was such a, a desperation for deliverance. Father, God, please forgive me. And God was merciful. Merciful through Christ and granted forgiveness. My question to you and to myself is, do you still have, do I still have that desperation for deliverance from sin? Or have you allowed sin, persistent, persistent sin to permeate and invade your life? Barbara and I read yesterday in our family devotions together, 1 John 3, 6. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. I read in my footnotes as we were discussing this, this quote. The one who lives in habitual sin has never been transformed by Christ's life-changing power and purity. I trust none of you are living in habitual sin. For you really have to question your own sort of conversion. As Christians, we should have an overwhelming desire to be delivered from sin. Are we perfect? No, we will fail. But we must be quick to confess our, our sins, as 1 John 1, 9 says. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Back to our Exodus story. I want to move on to the last section. As we'll learn the third step Pharaoh now takes to oppress and diminish the fruitful growth of Israel. So verses 15 through 22. And the king of Egypt spake to the Hebrew midwives, of which the name of one was Shipra, and the name of the other was Pua. And he said, When do you office, when ye do the office of a midwife to the Hebrew women, and see them upon the stools, if it be a son, then you shall kill him. But if it be a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God. That's the key thing. Midwives feared God and did not as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the men children alive. 
And the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said unto them, Why have you done this thing, and have saved the men of children alive? But then the midwives said unto Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are lively, and are delivered ere the midwives come unto them. Therefore God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and waxed very mighty. And it came to pass, because the midwives feared God, that he made them houses. Verse 22, And Pharaoh charged all the people, saying, Every son that is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. This last section I called the key for deliverance. As our story continues in verses 15 and 16, besides Pharaoh setting taskmasters over them, Pharaoh making the children of Israel to serve with rigor, he now sets forth the third and most vicious action against the children of Israel. Pharaoh commanded that the Hebrew midwives kill all the newborn male babies. Or as the ESV notes, as you see these babies being born on a birth stool, if the child is a boy, kill him. And if a girl, she shall live. Now just for clarification, the term birth stool is describing a type of stool made of stones on which women sat while giving birth. So again, at this point of our story, it takes an interesting turn. First, I want you to note that Pharaoh puts forth this command specifically to two midwives. One being named Shipra, whose name means beauty, and the other named Pua, whose name means splendor. I think it's wonderful when I put those two words together, beauty and splendor. For it certainly characterized these two ladies as we consider their role in following God and not Pharaoh. Commentators state that apparently both of these women occupied high official positions and were in charge of the birthing nurses who were delivering babies. So from Pharaoh's mindset, this plan would eliminate the future generation of men, causing the remaining young ladies to eventually be married to Egyptian slaves and be absorbed into the Egyptian race. Now for you mothers, just consider if our government put forth a law that stated all male babies upon birth were to be killed. Think about going through nine months of pregnancy, fearing that if your baby was a boy, his life would be ended. Needless to say, they didn't have sonograms, so you would be fearfully apprehensive and really sick in your stomach throughout the entire pregnancy, and especially at birth, as you waited the sex of the child. I thought about all you mothers here, and just your love for children, the gift of children, our heritage from the Lord, and yet, this passage reminded me of those who don't consider children as a gift. And as such, continued abortions run rapid in our society. I looked it up and some 65 million babies have been aborted since 1970. I've averaged about one in every five. One in every five. So sad. For like Pharaoh's sin has blinded people to the sanctity of life that God designed However, in our story, we see two courageous souls who understood the gift of life. For in verse 17, it says, But the midwives feared God and did not as the king of Egypt commanded, but saved the children alive. While they may have feared Pharaoh, 
They feared the king of kings and lord of lords even more. Now in verse 18, Pharaoh heard the news that the male babies were not being killed and called for the midwives, asking him, why have you done this thing and saved the men children alive? I think their answer is great. And I just love it. Look at verse 19. Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are alive there. The ESV says vigorous. And they deliver the babies quickly, before we even get there. These two midwives were fearful, but they were also faithful. And God blessed their work, as verses 20 and 21 state, that the people continued to multiply and became very numerous according to God's plan. But, but not only that, God blessed these midwives with households. ESV says children. So he gave them children, his very best reward. And lastly, the Lord blessed these two because their names are listed here in the scriptures. Oh, what an honor. Uh, just a godly, faithful example of following God and not man. Now I need to tell you that some commentators and scholars would say that these midwives lied. And they were deceptive. But if Shipra and Pua simply told their assistants to not go to these births or to arrive way after the birth was over, would they be lying to, to Pharaoh? It would seem to me that they're simply using godly wisdom to counteract evil practices. Therefore, it was certainly not sin. However, if you take this a step further, this is the first instance in Scripture of what we call today civil disobedience where there's a refusal to obey an evil law because scripture commands a person to follow God instead. Such verses found in Romans 13, 1 Peter 2, all admonish Christians to obey human authorities. But Romans 13, 5 specifically states that such obedience must not violate our consciences, and if and when these laws of men are contrary to the laws of God, then we are to obey God rather than man. Acts 5.29 exhorts, Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. And these midwives demonstrated exactly that. They feared God and were obedient to him. And that's really the key to deliverance. I asked myself, what does it mean to fear God? A few thoughts. It means to approach him in awe and reverence. It means to submit to his word and kingship in our lives. It means to understand the seriousness of sin and the damage it causes. It means representing him well to those around us. So back to our story. How does Pharaoh respond? He is not happy. And demands in verse 22 that all boys now being born are be thrown into the river to drown. And that's a lead-in for Kent's message next Sunday. So as we conclude today, I just want to reiterate to all of you that as I said at the beginning, Exodus is all about deliverance, as we've seen here in this first chapter. And this theme will continue throughout the book. However, I want to leave you with one last thought. While it is easy to focus on the cruelty of the Egyptians and the suffering of the Israelites, the emphasis and thrust of getting ready for God's deliverance is re recognizing God's sovereignty, God's faithfulness to his purposes, his promises, and his people. 
For in spite of Pharaoh's efforts, God's people miraculously grew in number. And in this story and in every single one of our own stories, as we live here on this earth, that is still the case. God is sovereign. God is in control. As Hebrews 12.1 says, He is the author and finisher of our faith. For he and he and him alone has this perfect plan that rescues sinners from an eternity in hell. I trust you know this great Savior and that you have been delivered and redeemed through his blood. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this first chapter in Exodus. Thank you for what you taught me about deliverance and how this parallels to the gospel. Thank you for sending Christ to die for our sins. Thank you for delivering us from hell. Lord, keep us people who continue and desire to always be delivered from sin as well. So we pray that you would just use these words in each of our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.